0: Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 15 through 29, our focus this morning will be on verses 19 through 25, to give a human example brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture Imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we're no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith for as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free there is no male and female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, For any sinner outside of Christ, may Your law drive them to Him this morning. And for Your saints, may we not be so zealous for the Gospel that we fail to let the terrors of the law be known. And may we... A new sense, the glories of the Gospel as we too feel the guilt, oppression, and bondage of the law, yet knowing, praise be to God, we are free from it in Christ. Send your Spirit now to teach these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. In defense of the doctrine that men have only ever been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, Paul has argued that the law did not annul the promise, verse 17. And the demonstration that this is so is that the promise was made to Abraham and his offspring, who is Christ. So on one side of the law, you have the Christ to whom the promise is made. And then on the other side, you have the Christ, who is the fulfillment of that promise, incarnate, crucified, risen, and reigning. That being so, the question naturally comes, why then the law? What was its purpose? That's a question that divides many. Divided Paul from the Judaizers. Divided Protestants from Rome. Even within evangelicalism, this is a question that though they get the gospel right, it divides dispensationalists from those who hold to some form of covenant theology or some other figment. It even divides, distinguishes between various strains of covenant theology as to how this question's answered here though paul answers narrowly his answer is one that must be affirmed as it distinguishes the true gospel of grace from all cursed gospels now, last week i spoke of two disciplines that are distinct but dependent on one another. You, you have to do one to do the other well. Speaking of systematic theology and biblical theology, you can again see their importance as we approach this question and the answer that Paul gives to it. Whenever systematic theology comes to this question, why then the law, Reformed Protestantism has long given... Three standard answers. Those can be teased out and and worked out in a a number of different ways. I think uh, one standard work is John Calhoun's on the law. And I think, if I remember right, he lists some seven or nine reasons why the law was given. But at the most basic level, there are three standard answers. There is one, the civil use of the law. Two, the pedagogical or evangelical use of the law. And three, the normative or directive use of the law. The civil use of the law has reference to the restraining effect of the law, especially the law as it is in the hands of the government, who Romans tells us has the power of the sword to curb evil. The pedagogical or evangelical use of the law refers to the law leading us to our need of Christ. And then there is the normative or directive use of the law, that the law sets the norm for behavior unto God, or it directs us to live holy lives unto the Holy One. Now, I believe it was the Puritans, but I I can't remember exactly where I have came across this, but... Another way of putting it is that the law is a bridle to restrain our sin, a mirror to show us our sin, and a lamp to lead us into holiness. And in general, this is all good systematics, but you have to, you have to remember this whenever, you, whenever you're looking at a passage like this and you, you've built your systematic theology and it's that Systematic theology might help you as you approach a text like this. I think the number one way a good systematic theology could help you is if it's really solid, is you basically come to a text knowing what it can't mean. But you have to be careful not to read your systematic theology into a text. You should read your systematic theology out of texts. So don't read your systematic theology into a text. Read your systematic theology out of texts. Plural. Here's the link I want you to make. Whenever you read this passage, don't think that Paul is giving a comprehensive answer to this question. Why then the law? He gives a focused answer that bears down on this central doctrine of the gospel, which is the subject matter of the letter, letter. Justification by faith alone. Calvin's helpful here. He says, The law has manifold uses, but Paul confines himself to that which bears on his present subject. He does not propose to inquire how many ways the law is of advantage to men. It is necessary to put readers on their guard on this point, for very many, I find, have fallen into the mistake of acknowledging no other advantage to the law but what is expressed in this passage. So you should neither try to read your whole system into any one passage, nor try to read your whole system out of any one passage. Developing it from a single text. So Paul's answer to this question, why then the law is not comprehensive, but concise, focused. It's not exhaustive, but it's emphatic. And it's exact in relating to the doctrine of justification. So, with that understanding. Let's ask ourselves, why then the law? The answer is simple. Verse 19, because of transgressions. If justification is by faith in Christ, and that promise was given before the law, and we see Abraham believing and being counted righteous, And the proof that that's been the only way men have ever been justified is that on the other side of the law, we see the Christ to whom the promises were made. Why then the law? Because of transgressions. What does that mean? Verse 22, it involves the imprisoning of everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It relates to the law, verse 23 and forward, acting as a guardian, or better, a pedagogue to bring us to Christ. And so you can really quickly see that a lot of this relates to what we've talked we spoke of as the second use of the law. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in Romans. In chapter 3. He explains that the purpose of the law is not to justify, but to cause men to know that they are sinners in need of a gracious justification. And in 3.20 he writes, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in a sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4 after explaining that the promise given to Abraham did not come through works of the law, but through the righteousness of faith, he says, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So all this is akin to the same pointed answer he gives in Romans 5.20 whenever he says that the law came to increase the trespass. It was given because of transgressions, meaning, it was meant to imprison everything under sin, meaning, it was meant to make you know the sin that is. Make it blatant, make it obvious, to increase it. Make it vivid and clear. One theologian put it this way, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. Or Stott, as always, concisely comments, The function of the law was not to bestow salvation, but to convince men of their need of it. So in regards to justification, the law was given not for righteousness, but because of sin. Now listen to that statement carefully. I'm speaking narrowly in regards to justification. I'm not speaking of sanctification. It's key to understanding Paul's intent here. And understanding how you might cause this passage to conflict with some other in regards to justification narrowly. This is the purpose of the law. Not for righteousness. For those God has redeemed, yes, it leads them and directs them into holiness unto the Lord. That's not what we're talking about. In regards to justification, the law has no other purpose than this. Not for righteousness. Righteousness but because of sin, to make sin known, to exacerbate, as it were, our sin problem. This function has a historical expiration date, verse 19, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. The law enjoys a kind of historical prominence until Christ is made known such that it makes this lesson writ large on the page of history. So in the same way that whenever you study Western civilization, Rome enjoyed such a position that things are thought of in reference to her, the law enjoys a kind of historical prominence. It dominates the biblical landscape for this season, not because it's ever meant to dominate and rule in a sense, unto salvation. But it rules, in a sense, pedagogically to teach and to make this lesson plain and obvious. 430 years before the law, the promise. On the other side of Christ and in between there, this dominant peak of Sinai that draws the eye and makes this clear. We are sinners. Further, he tells us that the law, verse 19, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, what does that mean? And why does he mention it here? There are several texts in the Scriptures that speak of the role of angels in giving of the law. That's about all you learn is that they had some kind of role. It doesn't doesn't elaborate on it. Just know that whenever the law happened, angels were involved. Can't tell you anything more than that. Deuteronomy 33, Yahweh came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Psalm 68, 17, the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. Yahweh is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Most plain, Acts 7.53, tells us that the law was delivered by angels. Or we go to Hebrews 2.2 2, and it speaks of the law as the message declared by angels. So angels were involved, but why does Paul bring that about up here? I think it's that the way that the law was transmitted speaks to its limitation. The promise was spoken directly to Abraham. And the one who is the fulfillment of that promise is God. The one who mediates the new covenant is God. The one who's now in between us and God is God the Son. Emmanuel, God with us. So again, this just highlights the priority of the promise over the law. And so then, that's settled. The question next comes, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises? Are the law and gospel at cross purposes? And Paul answers emphatically, certainly not. If a law could give life, then righteousness would be by law, verse 21, but the law can't. That was never the express purpose of the law to give life. It was never in competition with the gospel. Instead, the purpose of the law, verse 22, is with Scripture, in harmony with all other Scripture, to imprison everything under sin. So the law with every other piece of Scripture imprisons everything under sin. The Gospel says you're a sinner. The law says you're a sinner. All of Scripture says we're sinners. There's not two different messages there. And it doesn't just say you're a sinner. It imprisons everything. I think that is Paul's intent in saying this. It imprisons everything under sin. It says, because man sinned, whom creation was under his feet, he was given dominion, because he sinned, the earth was cursed. Everything is under sin, because man sinned. The work of the law, as it's written on the consciences of men, testifies against all men in this regard. So Romans 2. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on top of that, what happens in God's scheme of redemption and His revelation of redemption to bring men to Himself is that the law given through Moses makes this blatantly plain and obvious. A child may instinctually know not to touch whatever it is. They know not to touch. There's a kind of law written on their hearts. That would be disobeying if I touched that. But whenever Daddy says, don't touch, it highlights the rebellion so much more. And so it is with God's law. In Romans 7, 7, Paul asks, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Same kind of objection. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Made it known. And so the law... With all of Scripture, imprisons everything under sin, making this plain. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In that passage from Romans three, Paul quotes Psalms five nine ten 14:1 through three thirty six one. 53, 1 through 3, 143, Proverbs 1.16, and Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. The Scripture testifies of this, imprisoning everything under sin, and it's the express purpose of a specific portion and kind of scripture, the law, to amplify that point emphatically. Luther comments. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. The law was never a program to work off your debt any future payment rendered, and let's just speak theoretically as if it were possible, even should you render perfect obedience from this point forward in your life, conforming to the law without fall, you would only be giving God what He is due. You did nothing concerning what He was due. This is not a hole you can dig out of by works of the law. And it is not either that God has lowered His standard so that it's a parole system whereby you can get off by good behavior. The law is the sentence of our condemnation. And Paul has already spoke of that terrifying sentence in verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. How is this not contrary to the promise of the gospel? Because the gospel speaks to none but sinners. One cannot hear the gospel until their ears have been slapped by the law and are ringing with guilt. The Scripture imprisons everything under sin so that, verse 22, for this purpose, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Contrary to the Judaizers, the promise does not serve the law. The law serves the promise. It is meant to drive men to the promised. It bids one flee to Christ. Again, Luther writes, whoever knows that when the law is most terrifying, then the end of the law and the beginning of grace and of future faith are present. Such a person uses the law correctly. The law is the nail in the coffin at our efforts at self-righteousness. Showing us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and our only hope is the grace in the crucified and risen Christ. The law can build nothing but a coffin. You cannot build any edifice of self-righteousness with it. Your only hope is that righteousness of the rock, Jesus Christ. In the final verses of this passage, Paul returns to this duration element. Verses 23-25, through 25, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, under, un, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. He uses this peculiar faith before faith came. Now Paul's already explained that Abraham was justified by faith. He makes it clear that this has always been the way of life. Quoting Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11 also makes this really clear. That all the saints of old lived By faith. What's meant by faith coming? Well theirs was an anticipatory faith. And speaking of faith coming, it's clear by this passage is parallel with Christ coming. That which their faith was in. And now that Christ has come, for those who believe in Him, the law has met its end, its duration in this purpose. Again, Luther, the law, he says, with its function does contribute to justification. Not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use. Namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling us to Christ. See, Paul's chief aim is And speaking of this duration aspect is to highlight the function and use and purpose of the law as regards justification. And this is an abiding purpose that it has. Even though it's met its end because of Christ in a sense. It has this abiding purpose that until we come to Christ... It's meant to show us our need of Christ. The law grows out of the soil of the promise to make men long for the fruit, for its fulfillment. The next verse makes clear how duration speaks to purpose. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. It was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The word for guardian here is best translated pedagogue. You might be familiar with the King James translation here. The law was our schoolmaster. A pedagogue is something in between a schoolmaster and a guardian. A Roman family might entrust their seven-year-old, especially wealthy families, To a pedagogue at around age, I said that, around age seven. This pedagogue would be a household slave. There would be a transition from the nanny to the pedagogue. And though there were lessons learned from the pedagogue, he was not so much a teacher as a disciplinarian. And so the pedagogue's task was not to be the schoolmaster, it was actually to make sure he got to the schoolmaster. And then at any point whenever he wasn't under the schoolmaster, he was under the pedagogue. Class was always in session in the sense of being disciplined. It was to make him a fine Roman, teaching him Roman behavior, customs, manners, propriety, etiquette. And so the child was as a slave, under a slave, until he matured. And in Paul's analogy as he draws it out here, maturity means... Coming to Christ. Verses 24 through 26. This was in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Listen to the way he draws this out in chapter 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So do you see the link between Paul's metaphors here? That of imprisonment? The the law imprisons everything under sin. And that of this pedagogue? Such that one is a slave, they're imprisoned. And the kind of freedom that both the law and both metaphors is meant to drive us to being found in Christ. The law, though it is not the promise, is not contrary to the promise. The plow that breaks the soil is not contrary to the drill that sows the seeds which will bring forth life. The law breaks so that we might despair and flee to the physician who might heal us. Again, because he's so clear on this specific use of the law, on others, Luther can get a little wild, but he's clear on this use of the law. Let me quote him again. For this reason, therefore, the law is not against the promises of God. First, because the promise does not depend on the law, but on the truth of God. Secondly, because in its highest and greatest use, the law humbles. By humbling makes men groan, sigh, and seek the hand of the mediator. It makes His grace and mercy very sweet, and his gift precious beyond telling. Thus, it makes us ready for Christ." He who has never tasted the bitter will not remember the sweet. Hunger is the best cook. As the dry earth thirsts for rain, so the law makes the troubled heart thirst for Christ. To such hearts Christ tastes sweetest. To Him He is joy, comfort, and life. Only then are Christ and His work correctly understood but we have so glazed over the mirror of the law that men find themselves more attractive than they are. We've not let the heavy hammer of the law fall with its full weight so that the consciences of men are crushed. We have preached the law in such a limp-wristed manner that they cannot hear the prison door clink behind them and sense the coldness of their cell of death. We've not proclaimed the law so that men feel the sting of its discipline and long for the maturity that can be found in Christ. The Gospel isn't sweet because men have never tasted the bitterness of the law. Men do not thrust themselves in despair upon God in Christ, crying out for a mediator because they've never sensed the terrors of Mount Sinai and the holy and awesome God of heaven. We must do what the Puritans referred to as law work before we preach the Gospel. Yes, may the law ever be may the gospel, excuse me, may the gospel ever occupy a central and esteemed, dominant, and cherished place above all. But for that to be so, the law must be declared. Let us preach the law. So that men sense something of the depth of their wickedness. The totality of their depravity as it affects every part of them. So that they do not love God with all their mind, with all their heart, and with all their soul as He's worthy. And then, once the image in the mirror has horrified. Once the hammer blow has crushed. Once the prison door has clinked loud, then let us declare that though we have not loved God, He loved sinners. And He sent His Son, born of a woman, born under a law, under the law, to fulfill righteousness. On the behalf of those who would believe in Him. And to bear the penalty and wrath for all their law breaking. If we do that. Then men will marvel. Then they will sing. Then they will rejoice. Immeasurable wretched pride looks at the law of God. And thinks. It's there to justify. Blind is the man who looks at the law and thinks himself capable of being righteous by it. Pride looks at the mountain of the law and thinks, I can climb that. And whenever I get on the top, eyes will be on me. God did not make mountains so that men could think they're big but realize they are small. Moses, who went further up the mountain than any, was said to be the meekest man on earth. The law led to the gospel will make a man meek. And the law rightly understood, apart from the gospel, will drive you to as it crushes and humbles and causes you to despair. Sinner, look to Mount Sinai and the holy God of heaven and look down on yourself in all your wretched sinfulness. But then, look to Mount Zion and look up to the crucified and risen Christ and believe on Him and you will be Counted righteous with His righteousness. You can neither see nor understand Zion until you have beheld the horrors of Sinai. Let us never tire of preaching the terrors of Sinai. Because it will drive men to the Savior of Zion. And it will magnify His righteousness. The price He paid to redeem sinners from the curse due for all their law-breaking. Let's pray. Holy Father, Thank You for the grace that is in Your Son. Nothing in our hand we bring, simply to Your cross we cling. He is our righteousness and He alone. We stand on Him and we come before You, sons and heirs crying out. And I pray that we would be faithful in letting the law have its work so that the Gospel might prove to be the power of God and to salvation for everyone who believes. May it be so. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen.